This is Radar Contact Lost, the podcast. I'm your host, Dave Gorham. I'm a retired meteorologist with a career in the United States Air Force and commercial and broadcast weather forecasting with a specialty of aviation meteorology. I've provided weather support to Air Force One from Joint Base Andrews in Washington, D.C., and to Marine One from Camp David. I've briefed military and corporate flight crews around the world. I've been both a television and radio broadcast meteorologist and have spent a large part of my career providing commercial weather support to clients in all parts of the world. I've created this podcast series to bring you interesting but tragic stories of airplane crashes that are either caused by the weather or when the weather is a contributing factor to the crash. Today's episode is a bit of a change-up, however. Instead of weather-related airplane crashes, this episode will be about weather-related airplane destruction. Today's episode, the first tornado forecast emerges amidst aircraft destruction, is about an event that on one hand should be recognized as a historic moment and achievement in the science of weather forecasting. But on the other hand, it comes with tremendous damage and cost in the form of not just one, but two tornadoes in nearly the same spot, separated by just five days that caused damage to more than 200 aircraft. Fortunately, these tornadoes came with only injuries. No deaths were recorded. And given what happened in the destructive nature of the tornadoes, this is no small miracle. The scientific achievement was the world's first tornado forecast. The date was March 25, 1948, and it was at a time when the word tornado had been banned for use by the U.S. Weather Bureau for fear of the panic the word would incite. It was also a time when the Weather Bureau only rarely made mention of tornadoes throughout the 1940s as well as the decades before. It was a time when the precursor to today's severe weather watches was still several years away. When the tornado touched down in 1948, it damaged 50 military aircraft and destroyed another 50 on a U.S. Air Force base, with yet another 50 damaged at a nearby civilian airport. More than 100 vehicles were damaged or destroyed. Damage to buildings and other infrastructure was extensive. The damage came to $10 million in 1948 dollars. This was historic damage in this state, as no previous tornado had ever damaged so much. This state, Oklahoma, located in the central United States, was already infamous for its ferocious and numerous tornadoes. The very next day, Air Force weather forecasters at the base began to analyze the weather conditions that led up to the tornado. This process has now been recognized as the groundwork that would produce the first tornado forecast. Groundwork that would be put to the test in just a few days when the second tornado roared through the same area barely 100 yards off the track of the earlier twister. This second tornado damaged an additional 84 military aircraft, including the total destruction of 35 Air Force planes. Additional infrastructure, that which had survived the first tornado, now lay damaged or in ruins. This included hangars, operational and administrative buildings, and even more damage to the control tower. Unbelievably, and thankfully, injuries like with the first tornado were minimal. The damage from the second tornado came to $6 million, less damage than the first, thanks in large part to the world's first tornado forecast and the tornado safety plan that was put into effect just hours before the tornado struck the base. 
those dollars, 10 million in damage from the first tornado, 6 million in damage from the second, translates to about $180 million today. Staggering dollar amounts at the time, but could a similar event today cause similar damage? When considering the price of today's modern jet fighters, losing more than 100 at one time is nearly incalculable. For example, the most advanced version of the Air Force F-16 Fighting Falcon cost $63 million. The Navy's F-18 Super Hornet, $67 million. The multi-service and multinational F-35 Lightning II, about $80 million for the base model and about $117 million for the more advanced version that's equipped for carrier landings. We'll skip over a few even more costly fighters and go right to the most expensive airplane in the Air Force inventory, the B-2 Stealth Bomber. The cost to build a single stealth bomber is the polar opposite of its tiny, stealth-based radar signature, $737 million each. But could the Air Force lose so many planes at one time again? We'll talk more on this subject later in the podcast. It was Saturday evening, March 20th, 1948, at Tinker Field, just southeast of Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, in the United States. At the time, Tinker Field was the largest air maintenance depot in the world. It was not unusual for more than 2,000 aircraft to be parked at the base. Nearly all of them outside, lined up like sitting ducks for whatever Mother Nature might deliver. Being that it was March, the spring severe weather season was underway across the Great Plains of the United States. Winter cold was slowly giving way to summer warmth. In Oklahoma, a weak cold front had moved through the day before. As is typical for this time of year, the front was much stronger across the northern states and across the Great Lakes where there was snow and cold. But in Texas and Oklahoma, the brief northerly winds had already turned to a warm southerly breeze across an area known as Tornado Alley, though this term Tornado Alley would not be coined for another few years. But already another cold front was pushing its way into northern Texas and Oklahoma. Ahead of this second front, even late into the evening, temperatures were warm for March in the upper 60s and lower 70s. That's about 21 degrees Celsius. These warm temperatures were thanks to gusty, humid winds from the Gulf of Mexico, some 450 miles or about 725 kilometers to the south. Behind the front, temperatures were brisk in the middle 50s or near about 12 degrees C, and the winds were gusting from the west and northwest. It was the classic setup for severe weather and tornadoes, cold air from the north clashing with the warm, humid air from the south. Today. This scenario jumps off the weather maps at forecasters, yet in 1948, this scenario was not so well known, and tornadoes were not in the forecast for this Saturday night. Forecasters were not completely unaware, however, and the two Air Force meteorologists on duty at the base that night were concerned. It was noted that by 9.30 in the evening, strong storms were developing some 20 miles to the southwest of the base. 20 minutes later, a tornado was reported at nearby Will Rogers Airport, and then 10 minutes after that, the tornado was reported at Tinker Field. At the time, tornadoes were considered an act of God, and therefore unforecastable. The tornado watches and warnings we rely on today did not exist in 1948. Almost unbelievably, 
at least unbelievable today with more than 70 years of hindsight and technology advancement. The use of the word tornado was prohibited in any U.S. government-issued public weather forecast up until 1938, fearing that the word would incite panic, that the panic would be worse than the tornado itself. It wasn't until 1950 that the U.S. Weather Bureau chief lifted the ban on public tornado alerts. Then it wasn't until 1952 that the Bureau issued its first public tornado forecast. Which brings us back to the subject of today's podcast, because prior to 1952, not only did the Bureau refuse to issue public tornado warnings, it prevented the release of U.S. Air Force tornado forecasts, forecasts that were pioneered on methods and principles developed by the Air Force meteorologists during these tornado events of March 20th and 25th, 1948, at Tinker Field. As daylight broke on Sunday, March 21st, the true extent of the damage from the overnight tornado could be seen. Looking like toy airplanes scattered about the floor of a child's room, the damage and destruction of 100 Air Force planes was brutally evident. The Air Force, only six months old at the time, had lost 17 C-54 transport and cargo planes. These large planes alone were valued at more than $500,000 each. Also lost were two B-29 bombers, at a cost of almost $650,000 each. Additional losses included 15 P-47 aircraft, fighters that earned distinction in World War II as not only high-altitude fighters, but also as low-altitude ground-attack bombers. Fifty planes were a total loss, and another 50 aircraft were, according to the chief of the Aircraft Maintenance Division, bumped and bruised, but repairable. Structural damage included the base's control tower. It was in the tower where three of the eight injuries occurred. The injured controllers had been badly cut by the flying glass of the large tower windows. This damage was recorded as the costliest ever in Oklahoma up until that time. Also on this day, something else was happening. As cleanup details of Air Force personnel attacked the damage, and as government accountants surveyed and tallied the losses, Air Force meteorologists began analyzing the weather patterns of the day before. Could these tornadoes, acknowledged even by experts at the time as unforecastable, could they actually be forecastable? The weather events of the previous few days were examined with intense scrutiny. And remember, military meteorologists were leaders in the science of weather prediction. It was just four years earlier when a team of British Royal Navy and American Strategic and Tactical Air Force forecasters were credited with helping to turn the tide of World War II in the European theater with a successful forecast for the D-Day invasion. The forecasters had urged a 24-hour delay of the surprise attack while waiting for an expected but small window of suitable weather, which arrived on time as the largest seaborne invasion in history commenced. For the three days following the Saturday night tornado, Air Force meteorologist Captain Robert Miller and Major Ernest Fawbush pored over the weather maps of the past week, as well as past tornado outbreaks elsewhere in the country. They noted atmospheric similarities and relationships in surface and upper air features. They also examined theories and ideas of other scientists and researchers. They were able to list specific atmospheric conditions that were present days and hours before a tornado formed. 
They noted the cause and effect of geographic features that could enhance the development of severe thunderstorms, which could then intensify tornado outbreaks. As they were attempting to understand what had happened, they couldn't help but notice how the current weather data they were examining had an eerie similarity to what they noted five days earlier. But the pair were apprehensive. Though the conditions were setting up as they had a few days earlier, tornadoes had not ever been previously forecast. Scientists knew, or feared, that developing storms of this type could not be forecast in advance. As eye-opening as this new research was to the two Air Force forecasters in Oklahoma, and under the light of the record-breaking tornado five days earlier, they just could not ignore how the atmosphere was taking shape and what it meant for the likelihood of severe weather and tornadoes again. On Thursday morning, March 25th, five days after the first tornado, Miller and Fawbush had a prog chart prepared for 6 p.m. local time. A prognostic chart would show the position of the critical parameters, things such as wind direction and speed, the temperature, the humidity, and the pressures across the central United States. The chart that they prepared covered an area of about 30,000 square miles, or more than 77,000 square kilometers. After the morning analysis of the surface and upper air data, and now with the evening prog chart in hand, the two forecasters were convinced that central Oklahoma would once again be under the threat for not only strong thunderstorms, but tornadoes as well. This activity would begin in the late afternoon hours and continue into the early evening. They notified their superiors. I'm sure this Thursday in 1948 Oklahoma wasn't too much different than my days in an Oklahoma Air Force weather office some 31 years later. The day began with the junior weather observers or weather technicians plotting up the weather charts so they could be analyzed by the forecasters. Atmospheric data from weather balloons was delivered by teletype and then plotted on maps and analyzed. Weather observations taken each hour would be monitored and not just the local weather observations, but the observations taken by weather observers at military and civilian airports across the region and perhaps even across the country. One of the forecasters or other senior member of the station would be monitoring the radar. All this information would be considered and discussed by the higher ranking officers and NCOs throughout the morning and afternoon. Forecasters with not only knowledge of aviation meteorology, but experts in severe weather who were charged with issuing watches and warnings to protect the people and the property on the base. As the Oklahoma team watched the clock tick past noon, weather stations to the west and southwest began to report the beginnings of cumulus cloud formation. With continued development, these cumulus clouds would become cumulonimbus clouds, thunderstorms. Just before 2 o'clock, the weather radar indicated that thunderstorms were forming, and a few minutes later, a squall line began taking shape 60 miles northwest to 100 miles southwest of the station. This radar unit, by the way, was the trusty ANAPQ-13, a radar first developed as a ground scanner and used with great effect by B-29 bombers in World War II just a few years before. It was the first military radar converted for use as a weather radar for both U.S. Air Force and civilian purposes. It was used in this way from the mid-1940s all the way up through the late 1970s. Interestingly, the last ANAPQ-13 radar was retired in 1977 from Fort Sill Army Post, located just a few miles down the highway from Tinker Air Force Base. Back to Saturday afternoon at Tinker Field. 
It's 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and a squall line has been forming west of Tanker Field. Captain Miller and Major Fawbush are discussing the next steps. A few minutes after that, the base commander, Major General Borum, entered the weather station and walked over to the weather radar display. I can picture the scene as I've been there myself. I was a junior weather forecaster at an Air Force base in southwestern Oklahoma. I know the weather, I know the procedures, I know the intensity in the office in the hours leading up to a severe weather event, I know the tone and the content of the conversations, and I know it was not uncommon for the base commander to make an unscheduled appearance in the weather station when the weather was about to turn really sour. By 2.30, the two forecasters, Miller and Fawbush, estimated that the line of thunderstorms would reach the base between 5 and 6 p.m. The general turned to the two forecasters and said, are you going to issue a tornado forecast? The pair hesitated and then reminded the general of the likelihood of two major tornadoes hitting basically the same area in 20 years, let alone in five days. Captain Miller added, Besides, no one has ever issued an operational tornado forecast. To which the general then replied, You are about to set a precedent. Years later, Captain Miller, in his unpublished memoir, estimated that the chance of such an event, two tornadoes striking basically the same place in five days as being less than one in 20 million. As the forecast was typed up and readied for dissemination, the two forecasters worried about a forecast bust. Perhaps self-explanatory, a forecast bust is a forecast that fails to verify. The two worried about the effects of a busted tornado forecast. It might set the science of weather forecasting back years not to mention what might happen to their careers. I definitely understand how they were feeling. I never worried about setting the science back, but there were certainly a few times when I worried about my career. The tornado forecast was disseminated at 1450 hours, or about 10 minutes to 3 in the afternoon. Once issued, base personnel followed General Borum's tornado safety plan. Aircraft were moved into hangars, loose objects were moved outside or tied down, and people began moving to places of safety. This included the air traffic controllers who accounted for three of the eight injuries from the previous tornado. As the afternoon progressed, it was noted the squall line was fully developed and by 3.30, it was continuing to move quickly toward Oklahoma City. However, there had been no reports of severe weather such as high winds, hail, or tornadoes. By 6 p.m., the weather in Oklahoma City was still fairly quiet, though it was beginning to thunder and rain. Shortly after that, radio programs were interrupted with urgent news of the tornado that had touched down at Tinker Field. The damage at Tinker was intense, though not quite as widespread as the previous tornado. An additional 84 airplanes were damaged, and 35 of those were destroyed. Though many airplanes were hangared, many had to be left in the open. Tinker Field was a huge facility, encompassing more than 1,000 acres, which is about 15 square miles, or about 40 square kilometers. There was a time, only a few years before, when the Douglas Aircraft Company was located on the base. In those days, the facility was not yet known as Tinker Field, but as Midwest Air Depot. It's estimated that more than half of the 10,000 Douglas C-47 transport planes were manufactured at the depot. So it seems easy to imagine a huge facility with not nearly enough hangar space to bring every plane inside. However, despite the damage, the tornado forecast was a success. Our two forecasters, Captain Miller and Major Fawbush, became overnight heroes. 
One of the unsung heroes on this day, however, was Major General Fred Borum. You won't find a listing for this on Wikipedia, so you know this is obscure, but it can be argued that, thanks to General Borum, many more lives were saved and property protected. First, it was Borum who pushed his forecasters to step up to the task at hand. For days after the first tornado, he pushed them to analyze and research. The general wanted to know, if they could forecast rain, why couldn't they forecast tornadoes? He urged them to consider to do what no one else had done before. He was not willing to write off another hundred airplanes as an act of God while waiting for the next unforecastable tornado. On Saturday afternoon, just hours before what would become the second tornado in five days, the general put the reluctant forecasters on the spot. He was not calm when he demanded to know, are we going to have another tornado, yes or no? The two young forecasters, Miller was 28, Faubish 33, they committed. Yes, yes sir, we are. The general was ready for the tornado, though it was the tornado forecast by Miller and Fawbush that grabbed the headlines. Well before the skies turned black and the two tornadoes ripped through Tinker Field, General Borum had put pencil to paper and devised his tornado safety plan. His plan directed people where, when, and how to seek shelter, into basements and into the interiors of thick, solid buildings. He ordered the tower to be evacuated. His plan directed how and where to shelter as many airplanes and hangars as possible, and how to tie down the rest. The general safety plan was a success, but it was hard to convince others to prepare for something as sudden and unexpected, something as unforecastable as a tornado. And this is interesting. Not only did General Borum remain unsung, but so did his safety plan. So let me give a shout out to all the safety managers, crisis managers, and incident commanders who have devised and written safety plans. These plans are like insurance. You don't pay much attention to them until you need them. But when you need them, they're a lifesaver. I've often said that the most accurate weather forecast in the world is worthless if the client who receives that forecast responds incorrectly, poorly, late, or not at all. Even though General Borum had his plan in place prior to the tornado in 1948, responding to the plan properly, as I mentioned, is critical. Today, there are many safety plans that have been written with the best of intentions, but remain covered in dust, perhaps not having seen the light of day in years. These plans need to be practiced and improved upon regularly to be effective. Case in point, on Good Friday in 2011, a tornado ripped across St. Louis Lambert International Airport. There was a safety plan in place at the airport, but following the tornado, the National Weather Service and NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, had this to say. Preparedness activities and the action plan procedures for the Lambert-St. Louis International Airport were minimal and ineffective for this event. The report continues by saying, The airport authorities, along with the airlines, failed to give any warning to passengers about the imminent threat of a tornado. Airport officials acknowledged that they did not provide a warning to airport passengers over the public address system, but they stressed that the tornado came up quickly and there was no time for any announcement. It's true that tornadoes can sometimes seem to appear suddenly and out of nowhere, but in this case, the National Weather Service warned of a confirmed tornado moving toward the airport 34 minutes before it arrived. Now, in the 12 years since that tornado, 
and there were no deaths, I'm happy to say, but in the 12 years since that tornado, the airport has made significant improvements, including a new underground operations building, more weather radios throughout the terminal, and perhaps best of all, better training for all airport personnel. And to add icing on the cake of the post-tornado improvements, the airport became certified storm-ready by the National Weather Service the following year. Storm Ready is a community preparedness program initiated in 1999 that encourages government entities, commercial enterprises, and even neighborhood communities to prepare for severe storms and to demonstrate severe weather readiness. The celebrity, if I dare call it that, the celebrity of the Air Force forecasters climbed in the months and years after the first successful tornado forecast, but they were not resting on their laurels. In the years following, of the 200 severe weather predictions, 90% proved correct. Of 75 tornado forecasts, 67 verified. The two were frequent speakers at conventions and seminars, and in 1951, they established the United States Air Force Severe Weather Warning Center at Tinker. But perhaps you're wondering what was happening on the civilian side of weather forecasting. Remember, at this time, 1951, the Weather Bureau was still a year away from issuing its first tornado forecast to the public, and they were in the hot seat for banning the use of the word tornado in previous years because of the panic it might cause. The Weather Bureau chief at the time tried to remind everyone by saying, A tornado funnel is only about 1,000 feet in width. More people are likely to lose their lives in mass hysteria than in a tornado. This seemingly diametrically opposed logic came to a tipping point in 1952 when Captain Miller and Major Fawbush issued tornado warnings for Maxwell Air Force Base and Gunter Air Force Base, both in Alabama. The public, meanwhile, received nothing. It was a tragic event. In addition to Alabama, tornadoes touched down in Arkansas, Missouri, Mississippi, Tennessee, and Kentucky. There were 200 deaths and more than 1,200 injured. More than 3,000 homes were damaged or destroyed, and the Weather Bureau gave no warning. And naturally, the Weather Bureau came under intense pressure from the public, from the media, and from elected officials. The Bureau's policy was quickly changed, and just a few days later, the Bureau issued a tornado warning for North Central Texas. This helped people take precautions for tornadoes that struck near the North Texas towns of Wichita Falls and Mineral Wells. Eventually, a phone link-up was established between the Weather Bureau forecasters in Kansas City and the Air Force forecasters at the Severe Weather Warning Center at Tinker. The two teams would then discuss any forecast before either one issued anything. I checked in with our air traffic control team here at Radar Contact Lost, and you can probably imagine that being in the tower during a tornado is not an everyday occurrence. Tony, Cindy, and Michael all reported that they were, thankfully, never involved in a severe weather event that required an evacuation while on duty in their respective towers. Tony and Cindy, however, were both Air Force controllers in southwest Oklahoma, smack dab in the middle of Tornado Alley. Cindy tells the story of an exercise where the tower crew had to simulate a tower evacuation for high winds. Except, at the last moment, the exercise inspector called for an actual evacuation. The crew were given portable VHF and UHF radios, plus other mobile gear, and they began making their way out of the tower to what was called the mini-tower on the other side of the base. 
When the controllers reached the ground level and stepped outside, the inspector surprisingly called out that he had spotted a tornado and to take cover, but he did confirm it was still part of the exercise. The team scattered, most running into a nearby ditch where they lay for several minutes. The team eventually made their way to the mini-tower, performed their radio checks, and then returned to the actual tower to resume normal operations. All the while, the real air traffic was held away from the base as the controllers and inspectors carried out this severe weather tower evacuation exercise. In another instance, Michael tells the story of severe weather and high winds at the Cincinnati Tower when, as windows were being blown out, controllers were literally diving down the stairs. Michael says, fortunately, only minor injuries were reported. If you live in the United States, you've likely heard of Tornado Alley. This is a broad swath of land that reaches from west and central Texas northward into the plains, across Oklahoma, Kansas, and Nebraska, even South Dakota, Iowa, and Missouri. Having said that, let me ask, which states have the most tornadoes each year? Well, of the states I just mentioned, only Texas, Kansas, and Iowa are in the top 10. The number one state for tornadic activity in 2022 is Mississippi. Texas is number two, and Alabama is number three. And where in Texas are the most tornadoes? Not in west or northern Texas, places like Lubbock, Amarillo, and Wichita Falls, the cities that are actually located within Tornado Alley. No, the most tornadoes in Texas occur in Galveston County. This county in southeast Texas is just south of Houston on the Gulf Coast, where I used to live, actually. Between 1951 and 2021, Galveston saw an average of 33 tornadoes per 100 square miles. Recent research is suggesting that Tornado Alley is actually moving eastward. Over the last few years, more tornadoes and more supercell thunderstorms, the ones that typically produce tornadoes, are developing east of the traditional Tornado Alley. So it's no wonder then that Mississippi has grabbed the number one spot in states like Oklahoma, smack in the middle of what I'll call the old Tornado Alley, don't even make the top 10 list anymore. Kansas, just north of Oklahoma, and the fictional home of Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz, and the twister that twirled her away to the land of Oz, did make the top 10 list. It's number five. Naturally, the question here then is, why is this shift in Tornado Alley occurring? Well, a large part of the shift is the lack of moisture in the area that is the old Tornado Alley, places like West Texas, western portions of Oklahoma. This area has been experiencing a substantial drought over the last couple of decades, and you need moisture to fuel the thunderstorms. And of course, you can't have tornadoes without thunderstorms. This situation is actually twofold. Not only is the new Tornado Alley experiencing more thunderstorms, but the old Tornado Alley is actually experiencing fewer tornadoes over the past few decades. It's interesting to note that the overall size of Tornado Alley remains basically the same. Whether it's out across the plains or whether it's sitting more east and south, and let me add that there is and has been and perhaps always will be a debate about the actual boundaries of Tornado Alley. The new one, the old one, and whatever one takes shape in the future. However, be aware if you find yourself in a room with a group of meteorologists, hey, it could happen. 
you might spark a spirited debate on this topic. By the way, care to guess who coined the term Tornado Alley? That's right, the two heroes of this story, Captain Miller and Major Fawbush, came up with the catchy term in 1952. As I begin to wrap this up, I want to mention just a few more things. First, I want to add a little more detail to something I discussed at the top of this episode when I mentioned the number of planes destroyed or damaged at Tinker Field and how those 1948 dollars and losses compared to some of today's modern military aircraft. I want to add a little more perspective and say that the number of aircraft at Tinker Field in 1948 was not typical for Air Force bases then or today. Tinker was a maintenance facility and a repair depot and at one time a manufacturing facility. The base was huge and they had a huge number of airplanes on site. Too many to hangar and too many to evacuate and not enough pilots to fly them especially given the short lead times that came with the severe weather forecasts. Basically, as the storm clouds formed, the planes at Tinker were sitting ducks. We don't have that kind of inventory today, and we can't afford to put all our eggs in one basket, as the saying goes. There are fewer airplanes at each base. Most can be hangered, and the ones that can't can be evacuated when severe or extreme weather threatens a base and its air operations. And hangars are not exactly the best places, though, to take shelter from a storm, uh, for planes or for people. And there's not an airport manager out there who will agree that there is ever enough hangar space for all their airplanes. I'll add, replacement times are much longer than the mass-produced planes of World War II and the mid-20th century. It takes up to a year and a half to build a single jet fighter. According to Lockheed Martin, manufacturer of the F-35, it takes more than 60,000 labor hours to build a C model. That's the more expensive carrier-based model of the Lightning II. With our online manufacturing capability, it could take two years or more to build only the number of planes lost at Tinker in 1948. Then, considering other manufacturing and assembly commitments, it would take several more years to catch back up. Consider that at the height of World War II, Boeing was cranking out 16 B-17 bombers per day, or almost 500 per month. And we had to build that many because we were losing about 1,000 per month. One of the single biggest losses for the Air Force came five years before, in October of 1943, when 82 B-17 bombers were shot down or crash-landed during a single-day mission over Germany. When to hangar aircraft, when to evacuate aircraft to a safe location, where to stage aircraft, how many aircraft are assigned here or there, what type of weather triggers these actions, and what kind of lead times are required. These kinds of decisions and considerations fall under the emergency plan for each base as well as the Air Force as a whole. I also want to take a few minutes to mention tornado safety. This is a big deal and an important issue, and I'd like to urge you to take some time to brush up on tornado safety. It's an easy topic to Google, and there are checklists galore for what to do and how to prepare yourself, your family, your home, and your business. As I'm writing this episode, the southern and central United States is recovering from a series of particularly tragic and strong tornadoes. 
Small towns in Mississippi, Alabama, and Arkansas have been devastated and in some cases wiped off the earth. As of this writing in early April 2023, there have been nearly 400 confirmed tornadoes in the United States. Worldwide, there have been 68 tornado-related deaths, 67 in the United States, and one in Saudi Arabia. Due to tornadoes yesterday in Missouri and Illinois, those numbers may likely rise. Under the right conditions, tornadoes can form almost anywhere. And by that, I mean there is no safe place. They can form and move across rivers, valleys, lakes, highways, even race up mountainsides. Rural and metropolitan locations, it does not matter. In addition to the U.S., where there have been tornadoes in every state in every month of the year, tornadoes are most frequently found in Argentina, Brazil, Bangladesh, and eastern India. Having an emergency plan and knowing what to do is critical when it comes to short notice and fast-moving tornadoes. This is especially true at night, when most people are sleeping and not paying attention to the sky or to the media. Tornadoes at night are twice as deadly as daytime tornadoes, simply because most people are sleeping and are caught unaware. The best advice I can offer is to be prepared, have a plan, know what to do, and stay informed. And to stay informed when the power is out, please have a battery-operated radio and know which radio stations in your area provide emergency weather information. And remember, it's just as important to know when to take shelter as it is to know when it's safe to emerge from your shelter. One last note about tornadoes at Tinker Air Force Base. The two tornadoes in 1948 are not the only tornadoes to visit Tinker. In 1999, one of the most powerful tornadoes ever recorded. In fact, it's listed as the strongest tornado to ever strike a metropolitan area, reached Tinker Air Force Base. This tornado, known as the Bridge Creek Moor Tornado, struck on May 3, 1999, and caused widespread and devastating damage across southern Oklahoma City and the surrounding suburbs. The damage to Tinker Air Force Base was relatively minor, this tornado was directly responsible for 36 fatalities and the damage was assessed in 2021 dollars to be 1.6 billion. This tornado had winds that were estimated to top 300 miles per hour or nearly 485 kilometers per hour. It's been recognized as the highest wind speed ever measured globally. The speed was measured by Doppler radar. That's all for this time on Radar Contact Lost, the podcast. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about the first tornado forecast and the 1948 Oklahoma tornadoes, there's lots of information out there. Start your search on Wikipedia, then check out the Gateway to Oklahoma History, which includes a great write-up from the very beginning, as well as a great chapter of how the Air Force and the Weather Bureau came to share a phone link-up so they could discuss the severe weather forecasts. You can find this at gateway.okhistory.org. Then just search Twin Tornadoes. And since we talked about the injuries in the Tinker Air Traffic Control Tower in 1948, here's something. If you'd like to hear an interesting audio recording of the time the Hartsfield-Jackson Atlanta International Airport Control Tower was evacuated due to high winds, check out the video on YouTube called Chaos at Atlanta Due to Extreme Winds. 
This happened during a severe thunderstorm on April 25th, 2021. The video is audio only, but it's great to listen to the controllers and the pilots working together to get through the weather, the ground stop, the evacuation of the tower, and then once the weather passes, getting the traffic moving again. I mentioned earlier the unpublished manuscript written by Captain Miller. Captain Miller reached the rank of Colonel in the Air Force, but has since passed away. Still, you can read an excerpt of his manuscript in the journals section of the American Meteorological Society. You can find the AMS at ametsoc.org. That's A-M-E-T-S-O-C.org. Captain Miller had a sense of humor, was highly educated, and wasn't above taking a shot or two at himself. All of this is evident in his writing. I enjoyed reading it. I hope you do too. I also mentioned that you won't find mention of General Borum or his tornado safety plan on Wikipedia. That's true. You will, however, find it at NOAA.gov. That's the homepage of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. That's NOAA.gov. V as in Victor. I'd like to also thank the team here at RCL. On the air traffic control side, we have former U.S. Air Force and FAA controllers Cindy and Michael Hintz and Tony Gorham. Tony and Cindy also take care of the airports and procedures research. Cindy provided me with the airfield operations procedures and programs from Altus Air Force Base, updated in 2021. Cindy, Tony, and I were all stationed at Altus in the 80s. The document provides general and frequently required instructions to flight and ground operations. This unclassified document sets forth directives for tower evacuation, in this case when wind gusts or sustained winds reach 70 knots, or about 80 miles per hour. This is not uncommon criteria, though this varies widely by tower construction, height, and location. On the weather side, we have meteorologist Chris Bear and Nathan Stanford with expertise in climate and severe weather, respectively. On the piloting side, we have retired FedEx Captain Michelle Acorn and FedEx First Officer Larry Gregory. And speaking of pilots, in the last episode, I mentioned the contributions from retired American Airlines pilot Captain Max Hendricks and how, despite his contributions to this podcast, he had never listened to a podcast before. Well, just as our last episode was being published, Captain Max had swung a leg over his adventure motorcycle and, with a few buddies, headed down to the Mexican border in Arizona for a couple of weeks of desert riding. He's been sending me some really fantastic pictures, but my guess is that he still has not listened to his first podcast. It's funny how some people get really busy when they retire. The RCL team is a great team because of these talented folks. Thanks to each and every one of you. With each new episode of Radar Contact Lost, I will bring you interesting but tragic stories of plane crashes from across the United States and from around the world. When these crashes involve the weather as a possible cause or as a contributing factor, I'll rely on my 40-year career as an Air Force, broadcast, and commercial meteorologist with a specialty of aviation meteorology to explain what happened and why. I'll also lean on my experts in air traffic control, meteorology, and piloting to peel back the curtain to take a closer look at what really happened. If you like this episode, give a like, leave a review if you can, and tell your friends. On Instagram, follow Radar Contact Lost Podcast. We're also on YouTube. 
If you'd like to reach out, send an email to rclpodcast1 at gmail.com. That's rclpodcast, the number one, at gmail.com. Lastly, let me thank you, our listeners. Radar Contact Lost has been doing great. We topped 500 downloads before this episode was published, and I'm happy to bring these stories to you, to all of you who have a love of weather, aviation, and history, just like me. Thanks for climbing aboard and settling in for the latest from the Radar Contact Lost team. I'm Dave Gorham. <laughs>